0: This is Hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at bewaretheradio.com. And we are now airing on CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. If you'd like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried in your community. Wolves are frightening. Their howling pierces the darkness of night, sending chills down the spines Of anyone who hears them. In everything from childhood fairy tales to blockbuster movies, wolves hunt humans and seem to be our natural predators. So is it any wonder then that when uh, ranchers claim their livestock has been killed by supposedly dangerous wolves, that those claims are accepted, even when there is little to no evidence that wolves were responsible for the actual deaths of the cattle the problem is for ranchers even cursory investigations by biologists and wildlife experts reveal that in fact wolves are often not the culprits in these killings however when ranchers are actually incentivized to blame wolves for the loss of livestock financially incentivized including ranchers who moonlight as hunting guides themselves Wolves, even endangered wolves, can be held responsible with often deadly consequences. In a few minutes, we'll talk to science writer Spencer Roberts, who wrote the Intercept article Cry Wolf Endangered Mexican Gray Wolf Recovery is Being Sabotaged by Ranchers Who Claim the Canines Are Killing Cattle and the Federal Employees Who Sign Off on Reports. Spencer is also an ecologist, musician, and engineer from Colorado. His writing focuses on corporate greenwashing and science corruption and is featured in places like Jacobin, Wired, and Current Affairs. You can follow Spencer on Twitter at unpop underscore science. That's unpop underscore science. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming and podcasting host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vuppert. Sebastian First, did you or your wife test positive for COVID,
1: which will answer my second question, how was your weekend? Uh, None of us tested positive for COVID. So far, fingers crossed, knock on wood. And my weekend was uh, relaxing. I didn't really do anything uh, except for test yourself for COVID. Apparently. Yeah, test myself for COVID, and just hang out, and just you know, and, and enjoy cat company, and uh, just you know, just just letting your feet dangle, and just.
0: I uh, I started coming down with a cold, and it's really. Driving me crazy because every time I get anything right now, I think that I have
1: COVID, and that would be a huge problem for me. Yeah, I think we all we all are in that. I mean, of course, you are in the special mindset there with the upcoming surgery. And yeah. Everything, but like, whenever I'm like, I get like the slightest hint of anything, a sniffle or like a scratchy throat, I'm like, I'm dying. Exactly,
0: exactly. Because my weekend started off great because. You gave me a homemade lemon, lemon tiramisu, tiramisu cake that was made by your wife, who is a professional pastry chef, so thank you to Chloe, as it was absolutely delicious. I didn't finish it, obviously, yet, but I've been trying to eat as much as I can because my doctor told me to put on as much weight as possible. I also had a, a very productive weekend, unearthing my home office from the piles of newspapers and mail that have accumulated since I was hospitalized back in early March. Speaking of which, my doctor told me, as I was saying, to put on as much weight as possible so uh, for my upcoming surgery. So again, thank you to Chloe for the lemon tiramisu, as apparently it's actually good for me in my current medical condition. So Chloe's actually did something healthy for me by that, giving that, me a lemon tiramisu cake. That
1: was, that was the expressed idea,
0: to put some weight on, uh, <laughs> on your bones. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Very thoughtful of you. More important than
1: any of that, Sebastian, what is this week's question from Hell? Uh, This week's question from Hell is, what are you contributing to the battle against inflation? What are you contributing to the battle against inflation? Uh, The battle against inflation. I do
0: not want to lose that battle. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter. At this is hell radio, or you can email Chuck at thisishell com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, as we do each and every weekend. And if you do want to hear. Uh, an interview that we did maybe uh, eight, ten months ago about inflation. Go search on Rob Larson's name, L-A-R-S-O-N, at thisishell.com and listen to Rob talk about inflation just when the inflation scare started. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins. Well, they receive your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, our coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st Century flash drive, the winter hat, and everybody's favorite, the trucker's cap. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com, and you click on support where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Sebastian has this
1: week's Hangover Cure. Uh, This week's Hangover Cure is Sancocho. Is that how you say yeah, that it? That sounds S- good. Sancocho. According to the Smithsonian Magazine article... <laughs> Go figure.
0: Why was it in the Sm- S- Smithsonian Magazine? Why is there a
1: hangover cure in the Smithsonian <laughs> Magazine? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Why not? Uh, why not, I guess. Uh, according to the Smithsonian Magazine article, Panama Sancocho is a soup that can cure it all. The cherished stew is a welcome remedy for homesickness or even a hangover. By Antonia Muf- Mufarec. Mufarec. Mufarech. Mm. Sancocho is a national dish in Panama. Nicknamed Sancocho, the broth's full name is Sancocho de Gaina Panameño. The dish originated in the uh, Azuero Peninsula of uh, southwestern Panama. With ingredients from both the New World and the Old World, oh, that's some uh, yeah. dated terminology there. It's brought <laughs> yeah. by the Spanish to the Americas, some uh, Panamanians claim that Sancocho is the best hangover cure. Especially dated for the Smithsonian. Magazine. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. That's that's kind of uh, a hangover cure in the Smithsonian, and then B New World, Old World. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, what's going on she, at the Smithsonian? <laughs> She continues traditional Panamanian sancocho has five ingredients: Gaina, hen, yam, culantro. What is culantro? We'll find out. Is that like the opposite of cilantro? (laughs) Water, and salt. Many people add onions, oregano, celery, and other spices. And of course, a side of rice is important. The sancocho that is well known today probably did not exist before the 1800s or the advent of railways, given the cost of chicken at the time. Beef was so cheap that there was a livestock crisis (laughs) in 1590. Uh, Mufarek writes, today, besides the hen, the other dominant flavor in the soup is culantro, a herb that registers in every spoonful. Culantro is like a wild species of cilantro that comes deep from the Amazonian forest. The yam or ñame in Spanish, is also a key ingredient, as it acts as a thickening agent and gives the soup its special stew-like consistency. That makes this week's hangover cure sancocho.
0: And we are looking side-eyed at uh, the Smithsonian Institute this morning, apparently. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even destructive criticism if you'd like at at chuckatthisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest. We got an email from Martin in Chicago who writes, Hi, Chuck. Here's an article I read that you might want to uh, discuss now that Roe has been overturned. I hope you can get the author on the show at some point. So the article is at Medium.com, and it's essentially a whole bunch of tweets that have been put together into one column. And it's by Ethan Gray with the headline, The Message of the Republican Party, Don't Tread on Me, I Tread on You. Ethan writes, Here is the Republican message on everything of importance. They can tell you what to do, but you cannot tell them what to do. This often gets mistaken for hypocrisy. You've watched the Republican Party champion the idea of freedom, while you have also watched the same party openly assault various freedoms, like the freedom to vote, freedom of choice, freedom to marry who you want, and so on. If this has been a source of confusion, then your assessments of what Republicans mean by freedom were likely too generous. What Republicans mean is the freedom to tell people what to do, freedom from being told what to do to do when republicans uh, talk about valuing freedom they're speaking of it in the sense that only people like them should ultimately possess that freedom this is a very toxic relationship with the idea of who can tell who what to do so much so that it seems like the entire point is to conceive of a right kind of people who can tell other people what to do without being told what to do themselves There are right human beings and there are wrong ones. The right ones get to tell the wrong ones what to do. The wrong ones do not tell the right ones what to do. This is about white male supremacy and the accompanying caste system structure it enforces. The message of the Republican Party is that they quite like this caste system. White male supremacy is so entrenched that the press doesn't want to treat the Republican Party's agenda of sorting the right human beings from the wrong ones as presenting a messaging problem. This is because the press has chosen to accommodate the Republican Party in a very specific way. It normalizes the Republican agenda. It normalizes framing the responsibility for stopping that agenda as ultimately being on Democrats, that they have the messaging problem. White supremacy is not allowed to be viewed as a messaging problem, even when it is a threat to democracy, because if it's a messaging problem to Republicans, that sounds Like you're telling them that's a problem they have to solve themselves instead of blaming Democrats. So thanks for the email, Martin. I would add that the battle over who gets to determine which freedoms we have seems to be at the heart of the partisan debate that's not only currently taking place but has been happening for a very long time. Neither party has a monopoly on freedom, and either party claiming they are the party of freedom is misleading at best, and I would add, yes, hypocritical, despite what the author states. But whenever those on the right fly the flag that says don't tread on me, I can't help but think that what they are not including is, but I can definitely tread on you as much as I want. So those of you marching at protests against the overturning of Roe v. Wade, don't be afraid of co-opting the flag, that far-right branding that is In fact, very hypocritical. Don't be afraid of holding up a flag that says, don't tread on me. Because the anti-freedom of choice right does not have a monopoly on freedom. And allowing the far right to do so is a huge mistake. And always remember, Republicans also don't have a monopoly on hypocrisy either. Again, you can email us at chuck And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. You can also contact us via Facebook and send us a message, direct message via Twitter. Coming up, the troubled life and death of the endangered Mexican gray wolf. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And uh, episode six of Seb's Soapbox, when producer Sebastian Voper steps back into and through history to provide historical context to some of today's issues. Live from Lake capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Ever since Little Red Riding Hood, and even long before, wolves have been unfairly demonized. Policies for their eradication and concepts of private property have actually made wolves more of a threat than they are or should be. And corruption in wildlife service policies is further endangering species on the endangered species list. Here to help us have a better understanding of government policies and private sector incentives that pose a threat to an endangered species... Our guest is science writer Spencer Roberts, who wrote the Intercept article, Cry Wolf, Endangered Mexican Gray Wolf Recovery is Being Sabotaged by Ranchers Who Claim the Canines Are Killing Cattle and the Federal Employees Who Sign Off on Those Reports. You can follow Spencer again on Twitter at Unpop Science. Welcome to This Is Hell, Spencer. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Great to have you on the show. You write towards the end of your article, I hate to jump all the way to the end, but you write that it's been said that the wolf was humankind's first companion, approaching our campfires with tails tucked and ears lowered thousands of years before the domestication of sheep and cattle. For millennia, we revered wolves as sacred spirits, smart and social like us, but we recast them as villains and burned them like witches when we enclosed Europe and colonized the world with ranching. The modern plight of Mexican wolves illustrates how private power over public land remains a central threat to their existence. So did uh, commodification, did the market, did capitalism turn wolves from friends into foes?
2: Absolutely. And I think uh, it's interesting to Think about the mythology that you were uh, referencing just a minute ago with Little Red Riding Hood, for instance, you know, and all the fairy tales we learn. Um, for most of human history, like I sort of alluded to there, um, <clears throat> we have revered wolves, we have hung out with wolves for longer than we've practiced agriculture, right? But um, when, uh, so during this enclosure period in Europe, when uh, lands were being, enclosed and privatized, we sort of developed a new mythology. And that's when we sort of cast wolves as practitioners of witchcraft, demons in the night, coming to hunt our private property, um, to take the cows, eat our children, what have you. And that mythology sort of persists to this day, and it's very powerful. Um, And so we can see how some of that uh, affects our government policies and um, especially in terms of the recovery of the Mexican gray wolf here
0: And you start by reporting on the matriarch of the Prieto wolf pack. When she was snared in April 2020, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services Division had already gunned down her mate and killed or captured eight of her heirs. Officials decided to remove alpha male number 1251 from the Gila National Forest in New Mexico due to her alleged taste for cattle. The next day, she was found dead. Extreme levels of stress hormones had turned her blood toxic, a phenomenon biologists call capture myopathy. She would sooner die than live in a cage. So what does that say to you about the gray wolf when they would rather die than be captured?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely invokes a sort of pre-wild spirit, you know, the kind of thing that we think of... um, the the kind of thing that's so polarizing, I think, about wolves. Um, What's interesting about the Prieto wolf pack in particular is that almost the whole pack was wiped out by government order. And it's a really interesting microcosm and case study of the this compensation policy and the way that we will prioritize the interests of ranching corporations over the recovery of endangered species in this case. Um, one that's almost gone, It has been we've been struggling to bring them back for decades now, hasn't exceeded uh, 200 individuals since they were extinct from the wild in the 80s.
0: So what is meant by the removal of gray wolves? They just cage them and just move them to a different area? Because that would seem like a really difficult task. <laughs>
2: Sometimes, um, so usually it involves trapping them first. Um, Sometimes they kill them. Sometimes they move them to a zoo. And sometimes they do re-release them in a different place where they think there might be less conflict. Uh, In a lot of cases, that conflict somehow pops up again when they're moved and that's something that's going on right now with a pack called the Seco Creek Wolf Pack.
0: And you write that Wildlife Services justified the Prieto pack's uh, destruction by citing livestock depredation reports, which showed that these wolves were prolific cow killers, yet watchdogs and wolf biologists have long questioned the validity of this data. Now the former director of the agency has come forward to corroborate those suspicions. In your opinion, why would the owners of livestock supply uh, Wildlife Services with data of livestock loss that was not accurate. Is there any disincentive to supplying false data? Is there any way that they can get in trouble for lying to the government?
2: Um, it doesn't seem like it so far. Um, it, there's not even a lot of evidence that there's, there's only a few people who've actually gotten uh, experienced negative consequences from poaching the wolves, and that's the most direct threat to the population is poaching um most likely from ranchers although these incidents aren't investigated very often Uh, and in terms of the false reports there's certainly a a financial incentive to the ranchers for reporting as many as many uh, cattle deaths as they want and um but it goes deeper than that actually and i think there's beyond just the financial incentive, because a lot of these ranchers are making a lot of money off these subsidies and uh, public financing schemes, there's a a deep cultural uh, animosity against the wolves and against the government's program to help the recovery of the population. Do you think that animosity
0: towards wolves leads to what uh, this gentleman, Robert Goose Gosnell, who administered the wildlife services in New Mexico for a year and a half as state director of the USDA Animal and uh, Plant Health Inspection Services uh, job, of which he says he inherited an entrenched and systemic uh, corruption problem? You quote Gosnell saying, I know some of these depredation uh, reports that caused wolf remover, removals were illegal. How much do you think that that corruption is guided by just that perception of wolves as something that the, rangers, the ranchers just hate? Because I was speaking to a biologist over the uh, weekend. I have my sister's a biologist. I have a very good friend who's a biologist, and uh, my friend told me that. This has been an antagonism between ranchers and wolves that just goes on forever. And it's always led to these exaggerated reports. So how much do you think the culture motivates this corruption?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And that was one of the things that sort of came to my mind early on, looking at some of the subsidy filings and seeing these ranching corporations taking in more than $100,000 in a year, for instance. I was, you know, asking myself, isn't this a sweet deal? Like, why would they be so, um, why would they want all the wolves dead, you know, even when they're making so much money off of them. And I think the cultural aspect is huge. I mean, there are certainly elements of corruption within the USDA. I mean, as we know, the director of the USDA right now is a cattle industry lobbyist, or at least he was in between his terms, as USDA secretary. But um, yeah, the cultural aspect is huge. And I think it really comes down to this fundamental conflict over the ownership of land. And whereas, the, whereas some people want to use this land for uh, communal benefits, ecological necessities, a lot of these public lands ranchers despite being permitted to graze on public lands, believe that they have an ownership claim to them. And uh, there's a whole movement surrounding that. I'm sure you've heard of the Bundys and all that. Um, so it, it's it, there's definitely a very deep cultural aspect underlying this whole issue.
0: And you also uh, quote Gusnell saying, my guys in the field were going and rob- rubber stamping anything those people asked them to, the ranchers asked them to. And you add how Gosnell described how many also worked second jobs as hunting guides for the same ranchers (laughs) whose claims they evaluated a a violation of federal ethics codes. So to what extent does Gosnell know if the killings of cattle were done by wolves or not? Was this more an attempt by cattle ranchers to eradicate a threat to their livestock or a way for USDA workers to make extra money moonlighting as hunting guides?
2: Yeah, so, I I mean, the thing about the um, conflict of interest there with the inspectors is that um, that's not where I think the problem arises, really. I mean, they're, they're not making a ton of money either. Um, so I think um, when we're looking at the inspectors, uh, what's really happening is they're going out to the field. They're just one guy. They're going up to this, uh, you know, rant, the rancher has called them out there and they're telling them, look, a wolf killed this cow right here. And the inspector's job is to evaluate whether or not that's true. And uh, we're looking at these documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act from the agency directly. And that was uh, by a ton of work by the Western Watersheds Project, by the way, who I worked very close with on this investigation. Um, We can see just a very low standard of scientific evidence for confirming uh, a cattle predation incident as a wolf kill. And I mean, you can imagine that there's a lot of pressure on these uh, inspectors when they're out there. And as one of them told me, because we sent these reports to, Um, Wolf experts around the country, and uh, Goose did this as well, the whistleblower, uh, while he was uh, working uh, in the agency. And uh, almost universally, they said these are not wolf kills, or at least there's not enough evidence to determine these as wolf kills. And what one of them told me, uh, who worked for 14 years as an inspector, a little up north with much bigger wolves, um, he said ranchers can get you hired and they can get you fired. And I talked to three very high-ranking government wolf biologists in the course of this investigation. And I didn't know this uh, going into the interviews, but all three of them lost their jobs eventually because of complaints from the ranching industry.
0: So why why are these attacks on wolves happening more in the South than in the North? Is there something that explains why this would be happening in the South more than the North? Is it simply because there's... More livestock, more cattle farming in the south, or is it something more than that?
2: Well, that's actually it. It's kind of debatable. I mean, when you look at the size of the population, there uh, might be relatively more uh, Mexican wolves being killed. But uh, right now, in the northern Rockies, uh, the wolves, uh, the Gray wolf was delisted federally a few years ago under the Trump administration. And um, listeners may have heard that it was recently uh, relisted, but only partially. And there are a few states, which are some of the most dense wolf populations where the wolf still has no uh, federal protection under the Endangered Species Act. So right now there are there's an open season going on um, Hundreds of wolves have been killed since the delisting. There are uh, million, multi-million dollar uh, nonprofit charities actually issuing bounties for killing the northern uh, Northern Rockies population of wolves. So they're definitely both under siege in different ways. The Mexican wolf population down south is a little more bureaucratic. So the Mexican wolf never lost its Endangered Species Act protection because. There's less than 200 of them. The subspecies has always been listed. Um, But as we can see through the data and through the testimonies of whistleblowers in the agency, um, the killing continues, but it's in a little bit more of a bureaucratic way or just a secretive way, because despite the government ordering the uh, removal, capture or killing of a lot of the wolves, many more wolves are killed by poaching or simply just disappear. And our uh, best uh, presumption is that they were also poached.
0: So how aware is the Interior Department of the corruption that Gossnell claims is taking place? And if they were, why did they ignore the reported corruption? Because you write that when uh, Gossnell took over the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service in New Mexico, colleagues from the a fish and Wildlife Service in the Interior Department, they already warned him of shady dealings. So how aware is the Interior Department of the corruption and why ignore it?
2: That's a good question. Um, I think they're quite aware. Uh, and the corruption is not just within the USDA. I mean, there are definitely conflicts of interest uh, within the Interior Department as well. And when you look at the history of the Mexican Wolf Recovery Project, uh, it was a very politically contentious uh, process to uh, getting this recovery program instated at all. And one of the things that the original director told me is that no positive advancement in the Mexican Wolf Recovery Program was ever taken by the initiative of the agency. It's always been forced by litigation. So basically the government is mandated by the Endangered Species Act, to implement this recovery program and it has dragged its feet and half-assed its way through the whole last couple decades and it's had to be sued uh, periodically throughout that time period in order to comply with the Endangered Species Act and uh, to make the program comply with the law. So um, in terms of whether they're aware, I mean, they're certainly aware now. Several uh, a whole uh, coalition of environmental groups actually wrote uh, an open letter to the uh, Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland and Secretary of Agriculture, um, Tom Vilsack, and uh, you know, brought this to their attention, and um, you know. Several uh, senators and uh, House representatives have also you know, echoed those concerns. They haven't received any reply at this point. So I think you can take that as you will. And
0: the whistleblower, Gossnell, he goes to biologists, to people who investigate wolf killings. And he says that everybody has told him the, those aren't wolf kills that these ranches are claiming are wolf kills. And Gosnell tells you, I had big bosses coming down on me for making these kind of revelations. So why would administrators be upset with Gosnell revealing that what were reported as wolf kills of livestock were not wolf kills after all? How would administrators be damaged by these kind of revelations?
2: Yeah, well, the corruption goes presumably all the way to the top. Uh, Gosnell was told by his direct supervisor, that the New Mexico Secretary of Agriculture had some sort of arrangement with the head of APHIS, the Animal Plant Health Inspection Services, which runs the Wildlife Services Agency of the USDA, which is the one uh, that's responsible for carrying out this compensation program, these investigations, and also uh, exterminating the wolves and tons of other wildlife, by the way, every year. So essentially he was just exposing the corruption in the program and obviously that didn't reflect well on the higher ups who had been looking the other way at the least or actively facilitating this corruption at the worst
0: so does that change from one party being in power in the federal government or the other party is there a bipartisan consensus on the killing of mexican gray gray wolves
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, it doesn't change at all. Um, And the thing is, you know, I I don't know if what the party officials or platforms would say they don't pontificate on these kinds of issues very often. And um, the Secretary of Interior has, you know, said many times, you know, they're very concerned about the wolves being killed, um, about, about these kinds of allegations and poaching incidents, but they don't do anything about it and that's what it comes down to. to to really reform these agencies you would have to kind of clean the slate because even when you get somebody in a high ranking powerful position like the a state director of wildlife services there's a few people above him who can send them packing
0: you also point out that Gusnell later filed a complaint with the USDA office of inspector general and was subsequently demerited and transferred out of New Mexico. He responded with a lawsuit against the federal government, which reached a settlement that restored his record and paid his legal fees. But no action was taken to address the corrupt livestock compensation and wolf removal programs he blew the whistle on. So Gasnell was shown to be in the right, but the wrong that he was reporting, that was never addressed?
2: Nope. So that's why he came to the media, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, because he was tired of this. He was tired of having this kind of thing going on. So we're speaking with science writer Spencer Roberts, who wrote the Intercept article, Cry Wolf. Spencer is an ecologist, musician, engineer from Colorado. His writing focuses on corporate greenwashing and science corruption. It's featured in places like Jacobin, Wired Current Affairs. You can follow Spencer on Twitter at Unpop underscore Science. So I want to get to a press release in an April press release from the Center for Biological Diversity, a national nonprofit conservation organization. The center's Michael Robinson is quoted saying, this plan has to recognize that each wolf killing is a tragedy for the victim pack members and the endangered Mexican gray wolf subspecies that so many people have dedicated themselves to saving from extinction. I hope the government will finally take resolute action wildlife officials should start by retrieving the telemetry receivers loaned out to ranchers biologists are the only ones who should have these powerful tools to strip wolves of their ability to stay hidden urging tolerance for wolves while giving wolf killers the tools to locate them doesn't sound cutting edge and innovative anymore it's a bad joke that's already been told too many times the recovery plan revision process must logically connect federal actions to the broader goal of saving these endangered animals. And it goes on to say, excuse me, from 1998, when Mexican gray wolves were reintroduced through 2020, 119 wolves were confirmed killed illegally. Dozens more radio collared wolves disappeared suspiciously. Last year, 25 wolves died. Mortality rates have not been disclosed for most. Among the Fewer than 10 people who pleaded guilty in illegal killings, at least two possessed telemetry receivers pre-programmed by the government to wolf radio radio collar frequencies. Why were ranchers given telemetry receivers pre-programmed by the government to wolf uh, radio collar frequencies so they could find these wolves? Why were they given these telemetry receivers to begin with?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's supposed to be so that they can uh, avoid putting the cows near the wolves and you know instigating these conflicts or you know making it easier for the wolves to um you know to kill the cows um obviously that does not seem to be what they're being used for um like I said earlier the number one cause of death despite the government orders for killing wolves despite other reasons that they um do die the number one reason is uh poaching and even more than that wolves just disappear and we don't we don't know or the there what the term that the government uses is uh lost to follow up so we didn't really follow up on why that wolf disappeared but um you know we can sometimes make some presumptions um w- what you're referencing there is uh another active litigation suit so most recently um coalition of environmental groups sued the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service on the most recent draft of the recovery plan, um, talking about these poaching incidents and how the new recovery plan does not really adequately address these. So the court found that they uh, were in violation of the Endangered Species Act, the Fish and Wildlife Service and ordered them to revise the plan In order to address this poaching and you're gonna love what they came up with more funding for the cops so (laughs) what yeah Yeah, increase increased law enforcement presence in uh you know conflict areas that was that was their biggest um suggestion for tackling these poaching incidents and um obviously there's a lot of funding for law enforcement already and there's a lot of documented cases that show that they aren't terribly interested in solving these poaching cases in the first place um in the article there are several instances of uh ranchers a couple where they plead guilty Uh, there's one guy who's had his grazing permits formally revoked by the government is now being sued for trespassing on national forest land still has his cows out there and after that determination by the court he was still getting signed off on these depredation reports for compensation by wildlife services so um, the poaching is a huge problem it's the biggest problem for the recovery of the wolves and it's just not really being taken seriously by the agencies and so that's what the environmental groups are sort of pushing for right now uh, whether that is going to change in the near future. Doesn't seem uh, terribly likely, but at least now there's more light being shined on the situation.
0: And you write that on social media, Rainy Mesa Ranch owner Audrey McQueen, who runs a trophy hunting business and lobbies for wolf removals, claimed 31 depredation confirmations in six months. The said of the wolves had killed more than 10% of her herd. Wolf experts don't buy it. You then quote Carter Niemeyer, who conducted and reviewed hundreds of depredation investigations over 14 years as a wildlife services district supervisor in Montana, telling you, I've never heard of such a thing. So clearly Rainy Mesa ranch owner Audrey McQueen, who runs a trophy hunting business, has a conflict of interest. Why would the USDA accept McQueen's claims when there's such a clear conflict of interest? And what does that reveal to you about who and what the USDA actually represents?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a conflict of interest for the entire thing, right? It's not just that Well, and let me just briefly say, uh, Rainy Mesa Ranch, uh, Audrey McQueen, one of the most egregious examples, and that's sort of the story that this article focuses on. Um, The Prieto pack lived in the vicinity or on the land allotted for grazing by Rainy Mesa Ranch. And the entire pack has been wiped out now. And they're a very genetically critical pack. There's a critically low, genetic diversity in this population. And um, Audrey McQueen, the uh, CEO of this ranch, is um, now running for uh, county commissioner of Catron County. And she's won the primary, so she's uh, basically a shoe in to now be a local official overseeing um, this program. So um, back to your broader question, the conflict of interest. Um, Obviously, there's a financial conflict of interest in the, with every uh, predation report, but fundamentally at the basis of the program, there's a conflict of interest between the recovery of the wolf, the ecological benefits for the public in general, and the leasing of these lands for grazing for private profit.
0: So is it politically popular then? Uh, you were talking about how Audrey McQueen just won the primary. Is it, uh, for a county commissioner, is it, um, is it politically popular to be known as somebody who is a rancher who kills wolves? Does that win votes with conservatives?
2: Uh, locally, yes, it does, as far as I understand. I'm not exactly in the area. I'm close by. But, um, yeah, it's definitely not a huge negative politically. I'm not sure the extent to which voters are aware of the uh, deeper fraud and um, poaching allegations surrounding Rainy Mesa Ranch. But in terms of being a public advocate for killing wolves, uh, it is very locally popular policy position.
0: And you point out that Investigator Niemeyer recalled the tremendous influence of the ranching lobby within the Wildlife and Services Agency. He uh, is quoted saying, we were the hired guns of the livestock industry, recalling that, the, that he was constantly pressured to change his reports by superiors and eventually lost his job at Wildlife Services due to complaints from ranchers before transferring to Fish and Wildlife Services to coordinate wolf recovery in Idaho. So, how much influence do lobbyists of the livestock industry have over Fish and Wildlife Services? How powerful is that lobby? Because I, I don't think that you know people might know about the you know oil and gas lobby or some other lobbies, but I don't think they know the power that the livestock industry and the ranchers have when it comes to their lobbies. So, how how powerful is that lobby? How much influence does it have?
2: Immensely powerful. They, the lobbying extends not just to wildlife issues like this, but our whole food system, right? Our uh, nutrition recommendations, our little USDA plate is written by industry lobbyists. Um, All sorts of policies, uh, all sorts of agricultural subsidies go through the process of proposal, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with ALEC, uh, American Legislative Exchange Council, which is sort of a lobbying organization that writes draft legislation to give to politicians. A lot of people know how the oil industry is very involved in uh, writing these regulations for themselves in terms of emissions and climate change, and the cattle and uh, animal agriculture industry does the same thing in terms of um all these things uh, pollution regulations as well especially with uh water pollution they're virtually exempt from the clean water act uh the slaughterhouses and uh just a interesting anecdote in terms of that corruption uh one of the things that carter Neumayer told me the guy who worked as a wildlife services inspector for 14 years was that uh, at one point in his career he received a letter from hw bush Asking him to cook the books to change his uh, determination on these wolf investigations for some buddy that he had in Montana, a rancher.
0: So the president's calling you to tell you to cook the book. So you write that in a 2018 study published by the Journal of Mammology, a team of researchers from the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, the uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Navajo Nation Veterinary Program demonstrated that the range of canine spread for Mexican wolves is entirely overlapped by the combined ranges of coyotes, cougars, and feral dogs, stressing that bite mark analyses should be evaluated along with additional forensic evidence due to the overlap between many of the carnivore species. And then you point out that in- Inspector Niemeyer also found this form of evidence unconvincing, saying that quote "tooth spacing by itself doesn't mean anything in my opinion, and described how uh, wolves can- often don't leave tooth puncture wounds at all. So if that's the case, why can't or why don't people like rancher, Audrey McQueen hunt the actual animals that are more likely to be attacking livestock. Why focus on the wolves if there is a real threat to the livestock that should be addressed?
2: Uh, They do. They trap and hunt coyotes, bears, um, cougars, all of them. It's just uh, illegal to to do it to wolves. So that's where all the conflict arises. Um, And yeah, just getting into the analytical weeds a little bit on the um tooth spacing that's essentially just the way that the inspectors they need some sort of hard data in these reports and um what they do is basically take a caliper and they find um punctures on the hide and they measure it and they say oh if that falls within the spacing that can uh that could be a, a mexican wolf then most of the time they'll mark that as a confirmed wolf kill Um, Obviously, there are huge problems with that because it could be any of those other animals listed by the scientists who did that investigation. Um, Or it might be, in a lot of these reports, you can't even see the punctures that they're measuring. And it could also just have been uh, scavenging, right? The the cow could already be dead by the time the wolves come to uh, eat some of it. So the the burden of evidence uh, is very low.
0: So how much is this driven by prize hunters rather having the head of a wolf on the wall rather than that of a coyote or a feral dog? How much is this driven and fueled just by the desire for prize hunters to have a really cool wolf head on their wall?
2: Um, I think it's, I wouldn't underestimate how much that has to do with it. That's certainly a, a very big factor right now for the Northern Rockies populations that have no federal protections right now. And as I uh alluded to earlier people are being paid bounties for uh you know most of the time with trophy hunting you have to pay a lot of money to go get the animal's head or whatever but in this case they're being paid so um yeah hunting the hunting lobby is a huge part of it too and uh groups like the safari club are also very active in lobbying against these um, endangered species act protections
0: so do we know what the impact would be on biodiversity if the Mexican gray wolf did go extinct? Is it, is it the natural predator for any other animal that would then see an explosion in its population? What role does it play in biodiversity?
2: Yeah, I mean, they predators play a critical role in ecosystems. Uh, as we know from the uh, famous Yellowstone studies, we saw the whole, uh, what we call in our ecology, a trophic cascade, right? So when the predators are restored, they change the behavior of the grazers. They have to move around a little bit and the vegetation has more opportunities to grow and that creates a uh, habitat for tons of species down the food web. Um, having predators at the top is absolutely critical. And I think we've sort of lost a sense in general of what our ecosystems would actually look like if all the functioning pieces were there. So part of it is a shifting baselines problem where we don't actually realize the damage that not just the extermination of the predators, but the displacement of the native grazers with cattle who are in a lot of these, especially in the Southwest here, um, at densities that grazers just simply did not exist at or anywhere close to. Um, in these ecosystems and the vegetation and the hydrology is severely affected by the government grazing programs that are also motivating the extermination of the wolves.
0: And you point out that in addition to the Fish and Wildlife Services Livestock Loss Program based on Wildlife Services Depredation Reports, the USDA distributes compensation funds for wolf depredations through the Farm Service Agency's Livestock indemnity program. There are also various state allocations, nonprofit coffers, and a predation offset built into the Public Rangelands Improvement Act. Federal grazing fees cost permittees only a $1.35 a month per cow or calf pair, uh, despite their uh, compensations being valued in the thousands, and the opportunity costs of public grazing licenses being estimated in excess of $1 billion per decade, notwithstanding externalized costs to environmental and public health so in your opinion are grazing fees undervalued by the federal government and is this a kind of corporate welfare program for ranchers are grazing fees undervalued and is this corporate welfare
2: uh, yes and yes um the uh, you know a dollar 35 for uh, uh each month of grazing a cow that you can sell for potentially thousands of dollars is yeah, not just giving away money. It's, it's more than just corporate welfare, though. It is, in my opinion, a, a very old, it's part of the project of colonializing the continent, privatizing the landscape. And if I think part of the issue and part of the resistance to reforming this um, program is that it sort of asks these really deep questions about how we came to own this land and how the federal government came to control it and what they've used it for historically. And ranching has played a huge role in the colonial project in uh, the Western Hemisphere.
0: And is that why a uh, McQueen would be seen as uh, politically popular? Because see, he, he or she would be seen as somebody who is continuing... That colonial invasion upon the land.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that's not how they would describe it, but yes, they—they, uh, they, a lot of these um, public lands ranchers feel that their way of life is being threatened by not—not not even, you know, removing or or canceling closing grazing allotments, but just using them for other purposes at the same time, like the reintroduction of native wildlife
0: it just amazes me how odd this whole system seems to be and how obviously corrupt it seems to be. You write that using existing depredation data and accounting for the uh, unique uh, factors at play in New Mexico, such as year-round grazing permits and higher cattle density. Uh, You mentioned this uh, biologist by the name of Parsons and his colleagues estimated that, quote, after the wolf population grows to approximately 100 it is projected to kill between 1 and 34 cattle annually, mostly calves. In 2020, That last complete year in the database, population surveys estimated 186 wolves. Wildlife Services confirmed 133 wolf kills. Parsons then goes on to explain to you, no positive advancement in the Mexican Wolf Recovery Project has was ever taken by the initiative of the agencies. It was always forced by litigation. So, How contentious is the relationship between environmentalists and ranchers in New Mexico?
2: It's, it could be really nasty. Um, yeah. And just the, those figures you, uh, cited there just to give it a sense of perspective. These are, you know, some of the world's leading experts on Mexican wolves. Um, they are, they're actually a lot smaller. Then the timber wolves and the even especially the Arctic wolves up north, which are also gray wolves. Some people call them desert wolves, right? They eat generally much smaller prey. Javelina um, was a big part of their uh, evolutionary diet, or like peccaries, right? Um, and they have been; uh, their population has drastically declined as well as have much of the li- wildlife in the southwest and, of course, the continent more broadly. Um, the And yeah, the efforts to um restore these ecosystems and these uh, native wildlife populations are incredibly contentious, to say the least.
0: And you also quote Michael Robinson of the Center for Biologic Diversity, describing the government's program of leasing public lands for grazing as a, quote, disaster, pointing out that it's the number one cause of species imperilment on public lands. You add that Robinson's book, Predatory Bureaucracy, The Extermination of Wolves and the Transformation of the West, chronicles how the agricultural industry influenced the formation of a division within the U.S. Bureau of Biological Survey that transformed in the agency known today as Wildlife Services a wildlife massacre machine posting annual kill counts in the millions and a leading reason for the near extinction of the Mexican wolf. Uh, this is kind of a broad-reaching question, but why do you call it a wildlife massacre machine? What, what does it say about wildlife services when the service they engage in the most seems to be the killing of wildlife, seems to be this wildlife massacre machine? So why do you call it that, and why would they engage in it?
2: Yeah, well, it's called wildlife services, because they're providing a service to the agricultural industry, a lot of the people, it's tough sometimes to explain this issue, because people hear that term wildlife services, and they sort of think of the opposite, they're providing some service to wildlife. Uh, No, it goes back uh, much further to um, an agency that was called the US biological survey, like we still have the geological survey, right. The biological survey um, was, well, eventually what turned into the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Wildlife Services um, agencies. And they sort of split Wildlife Services under the USDA now, right? And obviously, they are serving agricultural uh, interests. Back in the day, they would manufacture pesticides. They would, um, and they, I think they are not supposed to do this anymore um but uh they would put like cyanide traps out to uh kill uh predators um all sorts of things um but why they would do it it's just a simple um it's just a simple case of corruption the fox guarding the hen house and that's kind of a bad analogy in this case because the fox is the predator and they're killing the predator. so um you know the rancher guarding the Ecosystem, I guess
0: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, so you write that Nonetheless, the mission to Rescue the desert wolves has since Blossomed into an international endeavor With Mexico sheltering nearly a quarter Of the world's population in the Sierra Madre Mountain system, its cooperation complements that of the White Mountain Apache Tribe, which joined early On, declaring that we want to bring The Mexican wolf back To its home to what explains the Mexican Apache support for the wolves the, the Mexicos and the Apaches support for the wolves while US ranchers seemingly oppose their very existence why is there the, why are there two different uh, perspectives one that seems to want to eradicate wolves and the other one that seems to want to embrace them
2: yeah it's difficult um, i mean well there there are ranching interests in uh, the native nations that are involved uh, in the recovery project in in nearby as well and in mexico but um, mexico for instance has done very well since they've gotten wolves and um, their the population in mexico has been growing uh, more quickly compared to uh, on the state side and i'm not extremely familiar with the internal politics of it but I can only presume it has something to do with killing less of them.
0: But you also talk about when you get to uh, the public land grazing and uh, how Michael Robinson also explains of the public uh, land allotment program, quote, for various reasons, there's an incentive to maximize stocking. There are all sorts of things that make cows in an overstocked situation more likely to die. So why incentivize a program? That leads to livestock death. That would seem to go against what the wishes of the ranchers might be.
2: Um, yes and no. I mean, it's very low overhead to stick another cow on there, right? $1. thirty-five per month. And if the cow dies, you might get $1,000 or more from the compensation program if you can convince the inspector that it, they were killed by a wolf, right? So... Um, I, I'm not sure that it does go against the interests of the ranchers. Um, a cow dying out there on the range, it's not, a, it's not a big hit to them. It's not the kind of ranch we think of that we see on the milk carton or something like that. This is like, a hu- this is the desert, like a huge sagebrush ecosystem or something like that. And a big trailer pulling up, dropping some cows off for months at a time Uh, The government will help them get the redirect streams into uh, troughs so that the cows can drink, they will kill the predators, they will kill the wild horses, they will kill um, the vegetation that's competing with the forage that the cows might eat. Um, So it's all set up, you know, for the ranchers and if they uh, take losses, that's all built in.
0: Just two more questions for for you. Sure. Uh, you write that wolf biologist Parsons served as the wolf recovery program's first director, was its architect in many ways, working for nearly a decade at the Fish and Wildlife Service and navigating immense political opposition from both ranching and military interests. Now, you kind of shocked us with telling us how this is leading to police being <laughs> funded more in the protection or the eradication of these wolves. It's supposed to be the protection, but it ends up being the eradication. So mil- military interests, Why would the military want to see the eradication of Mexican gray wolves?
2: Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting part of the history. Um, originally, the one of the first locations that was proposed for the reintroduction program was the White Sands Missile Range, which is owned by the Department of Defense or you know managed by the Department of Defense. And, um, the military fought this really hard and it actually ended up working for the benefit of the recovery project because it's terrible wolf habitat. I mean, it's a desert. It's a beautiful desert, but it's, you know, sand dunes. There's nothing to eat out there for the wolves. So they were, you know, thinking that they would, the population would be pretty small. They could only support so many wolves in this area and, um, the biologists, uh, well, at first the government shut it down uh, because they said, well, there's only a couple places we can reintroduce these wolves and we don't want to. So I guess we're not gonna do it. And this was in the 90s or this was in the 80s. And then the first lawsuit was filed in 1990 and uh, the court found that the Department of Defense and the Forest Service, which is with the other uh, location, the Gila National Forest, which is where they are now um, were violating the Endangered Species Act by refusing to reintroduce the wolves. So they were forced again by the litigation to carry forward their recovery project.
0: One last question for you. We have been speaking with science writer Spencer Roberts, who wrote the Intercept article, Cry Wolf, endangered Mexican gray wolf recovery is being sabotaged by ranchers who claim the canines are killing cattle, and the federal employees who sign off on reports. You can follow Spencer on Twitter at unpop underscore science one last question for you and as always it's the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response you write while the betrayal of the Prieto pack evokes a classical tragedy it's not an anomaly for centuries the United States government has persecuted predators but now light is creeping into the shadows of its operations though rough terrain lies ahead Hope yet survives that wolves may once again watch over the walls of the Grand Canyon and sing to the Sonoran moon. With ranchers, with disinterested police and military interests involved, how much hope do you have for wolves uh, considering the power of the ranchers and their lobbies and the demonization of wolves? How much hope do you have for the Mexican gray wolf to evade and avoid extinction?
2: That is a really great question um you know there seems to be every interest working against them but i think the fact that they are still here is astounding and that alone gives me hope that they might survive especially down south where they have a little bit more room to roam in the sierra madres For instance, um, I think, um, yeah, I guess I think there is hope just in the fact that they're still here.
0: Well, I really appreciate you being on uh, the show with us. Thanks for contacting us about your writing because I found this really fascinating. And please keep in contact with us in the future because we'd love to have you back on the show, Spencer.
2: Thanks, Chuck. It's been great to join you in hell today. All
0: right. Take care. you Your Peace. eyewitness to grief, this is hell of what you just heard from Spencer Roberts on the many threats the endangered Mexican gray wolf. If that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously hell belief or understanding, an understanding like wildlife services actually serves wildlife, or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, This really is hell. Please show your support of This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on the word support. On last week's Patreon podcast, we went back to small-town America, northern part of Michigan's lower peninsula, to do our best at understanding rural Americans who, by chance, just happen to have a very negative view of us big-city Americans. It's a reminder that the views of some who live in the country have just as skewed a view of city dwellers as urbanites have of their rural counterparts, all fueled by mainstream establishment corporate news media that loves to deal in stereotypes of both. Really dumb it down for all of us. Make it simple for us to understand stupid ways of looking at the world. We also shared an interview with Gara Lamars from July 23, 2005. At the time Gara was the Vice President and Director of United States Programs at the Open Society Institute. He had just posted the Open Democracy article, The Crisis of Democracy in America, just five days before the 4th of July in 2005. Garra was writing that the pillars of American democracy, the open society, the culture of law, free media, independent science, and academia are under assault from the radical right, and a serious coordinated response is needed, founded on robust and honest debate. Gara explained that he had a mounting concern with the damage done in the U.S. to independent and oppositional institutions, and he argued we are closer now to ideologically driven one-party rule in the U.S. than ever before. And its hand-in-glove partnership with the most reactionary and tolerant media and religious forces creates something resembling theocracy so no it was not the kind of writing that was being discussed in the establishment corporate mainstream news media which at the time was too busy celebrating the fourth of july and what they insist is the greatest country the world has ever offered humanity It was our second installment in the ongoing, current, ongoing series of interviews on Patreon leading up to this year's 4th of July, past conversations we have had here on This Is Hell that the establishment media would likely call unpatriotic, even un-American. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Thursday and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash Hell. And if you subscribe right now, well, whenever you subscribe, you get access to all of our past Patreon shows and pr- programs, so you get like, over 200 monologues from me and over 200 interviews that you cannot find anywhere online right now except at patreon.com slash thisishell. It's now time for installment number six, I think, of Sub Soapbox, our newest segment, where producer Sebastian Vooper, a historian himself, gives his take on history Sebastian I'm here I'm here I did not fall asleep (laughs) I'm glad you didn't fall asleep we've had that problem before with past producers you can blame them though they're out until like four in the morning and then you know it's a Saturday morning when back then it was really rough
1: anyway Seb's soapbox so today's installment is kind of a continuation on like, a little bit on last week's. Uh, so last week I talked about that the past has a relational connection to the present, but not a progressive one. And that is something I want to expand on, especially in the light of the just horrifying Supreme Court rulings of the past week and the week to come. I mean, just today they, um, yeah, the the separation of church and state is eroding. Just a few minutes ago, they ruled that uh, school officials, school employees can lead students in prayer. So, yeah yeah, uh, say hello to that in uh, the future. But anyway, so uh, there won't be much of a country left come July um, once the Supreme Court dismantles the uh, uh, ad- advisory principle and the Chevron do- Doctrine. Um, uh, but anyway, what does that that mean? What does it mean that the past is relational to the present and not progressively related to the present? Um, It means that there is a connection between yesterday and today, but it does not mean that today is an improvement on yesterday, not necessarily. And that's extremely important to understand in this current moment, because, well, chances are that you've been lied to by well-intentioned people, but regardless, you probably have heard this old... Martin Luther King Jr. Bromide, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And, well, I'm sorry, but that's just not true, because that assumes that there is a moral universe. A universe, however, uh, the universe, however, that we have doesn't care. It has no moral. There is no bending towards anything. That bending is just a post facto reading into events that took place. Am I saying that Dr. King was wrong? Uh, Kinda. I'm generally not a fan of any kind of just world theories or other fallacies as I see them. Because the past wasn't worse than today just because now we have iPhones and women can have their own bank accounts. Uh, Thinking that, that the past was necessarily worse than today is a pretty dangerous assumption because it assumes that the world just gets better by itself, and uh, the Supreme Court kind of demonstrates that that's simply not the case. Um, I sometimes wonder why people think that way. There is something soothing about the idea that everything inevitably inevitably bends towards everything becoming better. Things will, will be all right no matter how bad things seem right now. What That seems to be the message here. Worse, the message appears that everything will essentially work out by itself because, well, that's the natural way of things, there's some sort of inevitability to it. But rights, rights are hard won and can be easily lost if we think that they just stick around by themselves without vigorous defense. I wonder what people who disagree with the Nazis in Germany would have thought about this. After all, for all its failings, the Weimar Republic, the uh, kind of type of Germany, I mean, Germany is kind of weird because it just goes through various iterations, uh, was still a freer country than Nazi Germany was, by almost all means possible. But neither was Germany's fall into Nazism a fluke, nor was it a progression over, over Weimar Germany things got inarguably much more much much worse for quite a lot of people and that's before the war and the holocaust began i mean began in earnest anyway and one can find similar examples across history for example historian ira berlin uh, established esteemed historian of uh, uh, black america warned about this when looking at the long history of african americans which in the high school textbook version is often portrayed as a linear narrative that begins with enslavement and progressively improves through the waypoints of emancipation, liberation, and then finally the civil rights era towards full equality and culminating in the election of Barack Obama as the first black American president. And this is a narrative that the historical record simply does not support. Because, first of all, slavery was not an unchanging institution, but one that waxed and waned across the 250 years of its existence in the United States. Like, again, everything people do, slavery itself had a history. The institution underwent tangible changes over time. At first, African slaves were not much worse off than white indentured servants, but then, through the introduction of black codes and the invention of the black-white spectrum, I I am grossly oversimplifying here, just bear with me. Slavery changed into a much harsher regime that made acquiring freedom for black people much, much more difficult. And then things remained relatively stable until the Industrial Revolution and industrialized cotton cloth production turbocharged the demand for, well, cotton, and that in turn turbocharged the demand for slave labor and overall worsened the situation of the enslaved people drastically until the Civil War. And then emancipation happened and things got largely better for black people... At, uh, during the reconstruction era but then reconstruction failed and under, Jim Crow, uh, under the Jim Crow regime that followed black people were again reduced to lesser citizens with fewer rights that were robbed of hard-won freedoms and rights that they had wrested uh, during the reconstruction era and the list goes on and on you get the idea Ira Berlin calls this counterpunctual history. The present is not the high point, not the end, not the end point. By, by, it's not the high point by, by being the virtue of the being the latest point in history. And things do not ne- perpetually get better for people. The world does not always improve, even though it might seem that way. Just think of where the industrial revolution eventually leads us to climate change and the atom bomb. Humanity was never able to destroy the world they live on before the fruits of the industrial revolution came came to came to bear fruit. Um, yeah. Anyway, and and that the world always improves is simply a fallacy. Especially when it comes to minority rights, the world does not automatically strives does not automatically strive towards the best, most just situation possible. Just because the present is the current, if fleeting, end point of history at any given moment. And that does not mean that the best moment in time is right now, especially not for everyone. The problem here is that we as human beings need narratives, and history, or rather the world, does not naturally provide those. Things are messy, always, and historians can show trends and find narratives in the mess, but those don't emerge naturally, and certainly are not just there to be discovered. However, as people... We are animals that are wired for pattern recognition, and we seek patterns in the mess. And we also want positive reinforcement and ultimately are easily roped in with narratives that everything will be alright, even if it clearly won't. So what's the point of this exercise? People need to be careful when being told that everything will be all right and that the world is fundamentally just. This seems to be deeply rooted in the American psyche. When it comes to progress, to minority rights, to making the world a more socially just place, those victories must never be taken for granted. Because the world is not just, the world does not care and is ultimately completely indifferent towards people. Rights come to those who fight for them and who keep fighting for them and keep defending them tooth and nail. We need to foster an understanding that the world is not just and that there are no real narratives and that progress is a waxing and waning thing without any fixed end goal that can easily be lost. Maybe this is the German in me where we have been told to be watchful for warning signs of Nazism, er, Nazism returning for most of our lives since just because there were Defeated in 1945 doesn't mean that they went away completely forever, and it doesn't mean that they can't come back to power in some other form in some other place. Another thing to keep in mind here is that we are living in a country that is politically carved up between two opposing fronts. Another prevalent narrative here is one of the pendulum, but... Uh, I, I also don't think that the, oh, the pendulum swung hard in the direction of the left, so now it's swinging right, so just wait and it will come back around, is in any way a useful way of looking at things. Because that, again, is a narrative that implies that there is a natural motion in these things. The, that notion breeds pacif- passivity. Why bother working for change if you can't see that pendulum will just swing back in time? That narrative also implies that the Obama administration, for example, was as far to the left as the Bush administration was to the right, which, yeah, I I wish. Those are simply false assumptions. Also, there are many more poles to the world than two poles on a pendulum. The world is not that simple, even if that makes for a better horse-style horse race style election coverage and uh yeah if you want to hear more about me rambling on like this tune in uh this friday at 3 p.m uh central standard time on our youtube channel this is hell radio 1996 yes you
0: can hear the extended dance mix of sebastian's (laughs) seb's soapbox again 3 p.m chicago time on YouTube channel This Is Hell Radio 1996. And real quick on today's 6-3 Supreme Court decision in the case of the football coach leading post-game on-field prayers with his team. The court uh, argued that this is a limited decision because it only deals with non-school private activities. But how is it a non-school private activity when it's at a football game A public football game, which has a public audience while the football team, football coach and the football, uh, while the football players are wearing that school's uniforms. And I've heard from uh, people who have been in these kinds of relationships with their uh, athletics coaches in the past, that if they don't engage in those prayers, that sometimes they don't become the starter of the team they don't get the the opportunities that the players who are in, actually involved in those prayers get on the team so i don't see first of all how this is a limited decision and secondly i don't see how i can see how this is has a huge impact on the students and leads to discrimination based on religious
1: beliefs anyway and also what would have happened if this coach coach's name had been i don't know Ali. Yes, exactly. What if it was
0: insisting that they pray to Allah or some other non-Christian religion? People would be going through the roof over this. So, Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share with us a few of the answers we have already received from our listeners.
1: This week's question from hell is, what is your contribution to the battle against inflation? On Facebook, George P. says, a labor theory of value. Uh, Fabio L. writes on Facebook too Opinions on Facebook (laughs) And Adam A. says Given that we are presently saddled with a bunch of incompetence at the wheels of government Attempting to slow inflation by openly scorning anyone With even a small amount of debt leading to a middle class shift towards a party Whose platform is a bitchy side into... Wait... (laughs) This <laughs> is just as rambly as I am. <laughs> uh, you side you slide into armed theocracy. Perhaps we should finally follow the advice of the pa- of past. This is hell, guest Ola Bjerg, and not pay those debts. In short, my answer is nothing. Let us all contribute nothing.
0: I like that. That's a good one, Adam, even though it was lengthy. That was very good yeah, at the end. Yeah, nice yeah. punchline.
1: And that is all we have at the
0: moment. Uh, you can email your answer to this week's question from hell to com. You can post it on our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for producing, as well as another edition of Seb's Soapbox. Uh, Sebastian, who are our upcoming guests this week here on This Is Held? Do you have that in front
1: of you? Our upcoming guests this week are litigation and advocacy director at the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, Zachary Manfredi, who will discuss his Boston Review article, Radicalizing Human Rights, Critics Say Human Rights Disclosure. No, Human Rights Discourse, Blunt Social Transformation. It does not have to. And then on Wednesday, we have The Intercept's John Schwartz, who will talk about his recent article, Right-wing Supreme Court Continues Its Great Fraud About the Second Amendment.
0: And we'll have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Mingaldi, moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. A couple, real quick, special thanks, special thanks to Neil C. We really appreciate your support when you went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Truly appreciate it. And we got another package from the wonderful people at Wild Folk Farms. Every so often they'll send me a whole bunch of CBD stuff, and they did so again, knowing that I was going through my surgery and my health issues, and I've been using uh, their sleep aid, and it, it works. The last night I passed out, rock hard and excuse me i passed out very hard last night uh very quickly and i fell right asleep and it was very nice let's just leave it at that bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996 this is hell
2: my demon is on my butt uh. my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller uh. and my demon tries to knock me down